Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. If your eyeballs function enough so that you can see with or without glasses, you know that the world is in many ways set up to accommodate you. But if you woke up tomorrow and couldn't see a thing, how would you feel? How would you adapt? Today you'll meet five people who are blind. And no matter when they lost their sight, I've actually been blind all my life. When I was like around nine years old. 23. It wasn't until I was 25, I was like, whoa. They've all managed to adapt to this world that is built for sighted people, including three professional weavers, one YouTube product reviewer and commentator, and one man who uses sonar, just like bats, dolphins, and whales do, to make his way throughout the world. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The five senses that we know of are sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. And we've all at some point pondered what it would be like to lose one or some of those senses. When I do this thought experiment, of course, as a radio lady, I think it would be sad to lose my hearing. And like so many people who've had COVID-19, losing your sense of taste and smell, even temporarily, is super frustrating. Losing a sense of touch, I imagine, would be strange, but of all the senses, I remember thinking that going blind would be the only condition that I would fear. The thing is, when we sighted people try to imagine being blind, it's nothing more than our best guess. And that fear that you might feel at the thought of having a severe vision impairment or no vision at all, no light, no color, that fear is kind of an illusion too. Today, you're going to meet five people who are blind and hear about how they've customized their lives to live on their own terms. In the final segment, you'll meet three people who are blind, all of whom are professional weavers at the Hartford Artisans Weaving Center. You'll also meet Alicia Brown, a YouTube style maker and product reviewer who became legally blind at 25. But first, imagine a little baby is born. That baby develops a type of cancer that results in the loss of both of his eyes. That child, like many blind children, instinctively begins to make clicking sounds with his mouth to see how those sounds bounce back to him, to get clues to find out if the thing in front of him is near or far, is solid or soft, is moving or stationary. That's called sonar, like bats, whales, and dolphins use, too. But you know who can explain this better than I can? Daniel Kish. He's the baby. Well, he's not a baby currently. He's a grown man with zero vision, including no color, no light. He's also fully capable of riding a bicycle and navigating his way around totally unfamiliar cities, which he often does as the founder of World Access for the Blind. Among other things, his organization trains people of all visual acuities to learn how to do what he does, to get around the world using sonar. But let's back up and see what we're up against. I asked Daniel to tell me about assumptions that sighted people often make about blind people. Most sighted people assume that blindness 
is like darkness for them. So if you find yourself in the dark or under a blindfold and you are incapacitated, you're fearful and you become dependent on others who can still see, they tend to just transfer or project that experience onto blind people. But blindness is nothing like that especially if you as a blind person have adapted to your blindness. Not all people have, and people do to various degrees, but certainly the capacity is there. And if you as a blind person ha have fulfilled your capacity and adapted to your own blindness, it's, it's really just nothing like, you know, a sighted person suddenly finding themselves in the dark. It's a very different experience. You've grown, you've learned, your brain is highly plastic. It learns new things. It learns to cope. It learns to adapt. It learns to hear, feel, experience the world in all of the ways needed to restore and maintain function and enjoyment and appreciation. You've said before that impressions about blindness are far more threatening to blind people than the blindness itself. What do you mean by that? If we look at restrictions around blindness, those restrictions are often imposed more by social biases and prejudices than by the actual physical limitations imposed by blindness. It's the assumptions made. It's the biases against. It's, it, it can be anywhere from a more compassionate concern to an exclusionary preference. But whatever it is, it tends to be socially motivated. If if we want something to occur, if we expect something to occur, if we're open to something occurring, then there's a likelihood that that thing will occur. So if we're open to a blind person being, you know, successful, functional, productive, constructive, then we're open to that happening. And then a blind person becomes included, competitive, participating, contributory, all the rest. If not, if we close off that idea, then we close down potentials and capacities uh, for blind people to be included and to participate and to become part of society and community. So it's a loss for that blind person. And frankly, it's a loss for the community as a whole. Yes, it becomes a loss for everyone because the exchange between blind and sighted people is removed. It, it doesn't take place. So there's no exchange anymore. I mean, that's not community. That's, that's discommunity. You've, the minute you start excluding members or citizens, you no longer have a community. All right. Talk to me about echolocation. Bats do it, dolphins do it, and you do it. What is echolocation and how does it work? Echolocation is basically a way of perceiving your environment through sound. You're basically bouncing sound off of things and you're using reflected sound instead of light to determine what those things are and where they are to a degree. And in fact, I can give an example of that actually here and now. Let me come over here. I'm in my backyard and I'm just gonna come to a nice wall here, okay? Uh, you can actually hear as I approach the wall, my voice will change. And as I come closer and closer to the wall, my voice changes, right? I can hear it 100% and I can see it. And if I do this, you can hear it even more. And I see you putting your face closer and further away from this wall in your backyard. 
Exactly. As I closed in on the wall and, and then backed away from the wall. Now, I don't shish all the time. I, I use a click sound. And what that click does is it compresses and compacts all of the acoustic energy of, you know, voice and shush and any other sound a person could make. The click is almost an embodiment of all the sounds we could make all rolled into one sharp, piercing, penetrating pulse. <laughs> now, before you continue, I tried doing this myself, but mine sounded not quite as sharp as yours. Will you talk about the technique to do it? Are there any tricks? Yeah, well, most people can learn to do it fairly quickly, and a lot of people can do it already. It's just, and it doesn't, I mean, it can be that or is another one. It doesn't. It's like uh, something's on the roof of your mouth. You just pull down. Well, what you're doing is what we would call a cluck click. And what's happening is the tip of your tongue is smacking against the floor of your mouth. And so I would eliminate that bit. What you're basically doing when you is you're doing two clicks very close together. And the effect essentially is that they sort of cancel each other out. So it wouldn't be an effective click for various reasons. And so I would keep the and eliminate the part of your click. So stop it from hitting the bottom of your mouth. Just pull it down from the roof. Yeah. 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 That's close. Ah, okay. That's already. That's better. Uh, and that sharp click, it's the same as bats use. Some bats actually do click and others chirp. Because it's such a compact acoustic pulse, it actually directs an enormous amount of energy, but very, very quickly into the environment. And so you get back so much more information that way from much greater distances. You started your nonprofit World Access for the Blind in 2000, and through it, you've trained thousands of people in over 40 countries to echolocate. But I'm interested in what kinds of challenges you're up against, because there's always been a way things are done with blind people, right? You get a cane, maybe you get a dog if you want one, maybe there's a person whose arm you can hold on to to get around. And there seems to be, I hate to say it, but kind of lowered expectations for what tools a blind person can and should have in their toolbox. So what do you hear when people push back on your work with echolocation? You know, you just named a number of things. All of those things are useful. A dog is useful. A human is useful. They all provide input into this system. GPS is useful. I use. A, I have a GPS app on my phone that I use. I have another app on my phone that reads signs and things. And you have the white cane, of course, and you have echolocation. And I think the unifying force, if you will, isn't any one of any of those things. It's self-determination. That is the unifying force. That is the unifying factor in all of this. That is the thing that makes any one and all of these things together useful. And that is the thing that, quite frankly, is often missing in the equation. Um, we may teach people how to use a cane, we may teach people how to use a dog, we may teach people how to use human guide, but how we tend to do that, I have to say, quite frankly, lacks this most central piece, which is personal self-determined freedom of achievement. I call it self-determined freedom of achievement. 
So it's that personal freedom to achieve what you want, how you want, when you want through one's own self-determination. But self-determination isn't even the same thing as independence. Self-determination is a, it's an internalized awareness of your own control over yourself and your relationship with your environment. And, and how you do that is also part of the self-determination process. So that's really the part that's missing. When it comes to echolocation specifically, I think <laughs> people who echolocate tend to be quite self-determined. And I think that since um, the self-determination piece is just really quite misunderstood, especially as regards blindness, I think that's one of the reasons why echolocation is, is often viewed with, with a lot of skepticism and controversy, that we're just not really ready as a society for a blind person to act in ways that demonstrate and illustrate and optimize this quality of self-determination. We're just not quite ready for that as a society. And we at World Access for the Blind and, and through echolocation training, which is one aspect of a whole program that we have, which includes all of those things that you named earlier. Plus, I think that we've just been pushing that envelope. You know, we've just been pushing against the lack of readiness to really help prepare society and other blind people to be more and more ready to understand this manifestation and expression of self-determination. Hearing you say this is both totally uplifting and exciting. And at the same time, the fact that this ability to echolocate, something that comes naturally to certain animals, including humans, babies with vision impairment echolocate naturally, just like you did, that this natural ability to compensate for loss of vision has been historically ignored. I mean, there, there have been blind people and vision impaired people as long as there have been people. And now in the 21st century, to most people, humans using echolocation is a novel concept. So talk about that tension that you and your team at World Access for the Blind must be grappling with as you advocate for the more widespread use of echolocation. It's <laughs> that joy of swimming upstream, I guess. Um, <laughs> There are two sides of the coin to this. On the one hand, you can't win for losing. You know, you're stigmatized for clicking. You're stigmatized for using a cane. You're stigmatized for using a person because we, especially in Western culture, and this is a Western culture thing, if you are relying on someone else for, for a service, we're uncomfortable with that in Western culture. And if you're a blind person and, you, and you're accessing the world by engaging someone to help you do that, that's seen as necessary, but a no-no, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's expected that blind people are gonna do that, but it's also seen as, as one of the stigmatizing aspects of blindness. But the other side of that though, is that when you invest, when you buy in to self-determination as the unifying and empowering force behind it all, then you look at this from an achievement perspective rather than a deficit perspective. And so the white cane becomes a tool of achievement. The echolocation becomes a tool of achievement. The use of a person or a dog becomes an expression of self-determination rather than, uh, rather than an expression of dependence, if you will, or 
an expression of incapacity. Let's talk about the future of your work. You've done TED Talks, you've done keynote speeches all around the world. You've been on more television and radio programs than I could possibly consume while preparing for this interview today. You've been studied, you've been scanned in labs, you, of course, have your nonprofit World Access for the Blind, and you've been so outspoken about the efficacy of using this technique. So I wonder what the world would look like so that more blind people and the people who love them would feel more empowered? Well, it is a world of empowerment and it is a world of appreciation for freedom, of appreciation for self-determination, of, of appreciation for blind people and all people becoming fully developed and becoming fully included because you're not cherry picking what it means to be a person. <laughs> you're, you're accepting people as whole people. The point that is most important to me is this, this concept of self-determination, of self-determined freedom of achievement, which is available to everyone. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're blind. It doesn't really matter what your situation is. There is, there is capacity to find one's self-determination and to apply that to not only optimizing one's own personal freedom, but the capacity to responsibly share <laughs> that freedom of achievement with others, to me, that's just, that's really the crux and core of humanity. It's being human. Well, Daniel Kish, founder of and lead instructor at World Access for the Blind, thank you so much for reflecting with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciated that. You can find so much more information on Daniel, his team, and their work at visioneers.org. We're going out of today's segments with songs from people who are blind. And right now you're hearing from Grammy Award-winning singer and jazz pianist, Diane Schur. She's been blind since birth, has perfect pitch, and when she was interviewed by Elmo on Sesame Street, she described how a blind person can use other senses to adapt in the world. The song you're hearing right now is Them, Their Eyes. When we get back. It wasn't until I started to experience great vision loss at 25 that I was like, whoa. Meet a YouTube host who uses her platform to talk about clothes, food, interior design, makeup, and how to navigate the world legally blind. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If you were looking over my shoulder as I was watching an Alicia Brown video on YouTube about interior design tips, her favorite natural skincare products, or ways to declutter your closet, you probably wouldn't know she was legally blind. But if you rewound, can you rewind a video online? Okay, if you went back to the beginning of the video, this is what you'd hear her say. What's up, everyone? It's your favorite blind girl back on your screen with another one. It's been a minute since... And if you flipped through some of the other titles on her videos, you'd see Blind Girl Uses Tinder and The Bright Side of Being Blind and Tips for Adults Living with Stargardt's Disease. 
Stargardt's disease is a genetic eye disorder that causes progressive vision loss. Symptoms usually appear in the first 20 years of a person's life. Folks with Stargardt's depend on their peripheral vision because their central vision is deteriorated. Color and light are perceptible, but when looking forward, they may see a black spot or gray cloudiness or a total blur with no detail at all. And while there are some technologies to help assist people with it, there's currently no medical treatment and there is no cure. I asked Alicia to bring me back to when her vision started to change. Okay, picture this. It's 2011 and I currently reside where I've always lived in Toronto. And I was waiting for a bus because I had finished working a shift. I was in university at the time. And like a lot of other university students, I had my part-time gig. But this particular route I used to take, there would be about four or five buses that would pass by. So you have to pay attention to what the bus numbers are. And that's when I first noticed, oh, I can't see as clearly. And at first I just thought, you know, maybe just like everyone else, I just need some regular schmegler glasses. And I had gone to an optometrist and they said, you know, we're trying to get you to 2020. Right now you're sitting at 2040, which is a visual acuity measurement. So 2020 is perfect vision. And as you increase the second number, that's how much vision you've lost. So they knew something was up, but I remember the eye doctor reassuring me that I was young, 21, and that whatever it was, I could handle it and I should be fine. After that, they did refer me to a retinal specialist because I guess whatever they saw just alerted them to. And seven specialists later at the end of that year, well, actually technically at the top of 2011, because it was mid-January, I was diagnosed with Stardust disease. And when you got this diagnosis, what did you think? I had heard like some buzzings about that word, maybe by the time I got to the fifth or sixth specialist, but I never really took it seriously because I thought, according to the very first person I spoke to, that I'm young, whatever it is, I can handle this. It wasn't until I started to experience great vision loss when my vision really deteriorated at 25 that I was like, whoa. And I think that's when I switched from denial to starting to adapt and accept. Talk to me about what you're experiencing now, all these years later. (sighs) Every day, it's a different emotion. It's a lot of adjusting because a lot of people don't realize how much vision you've lost, especially when you quote unquote, don't look blind. So there's some assumptions and of course, some perceived identities that are adhered to people that have vision losses. I'm sure you've gotten to know as we've spoken to some people on your show. So I'm sitting at 2,400. And what that means is what the average person can see at 400 feet, I can see at 20. So imagine that distance. So for me, I'm basically depending on my peripherals. So I can pretend to make eye contact with you, for example, but I've really zoomed into your face on my IMAX so I can actually kind of see. But in the real world, I can't really see people's faces if they're more than say, I wouldn't even say a foot away at this point. And it's been constantly degenerating, as I've mentioned before. My whole world, as far as colors, have been the same. I can still perceive light. The distance perception is a little off. So sometimes when I'm going down steps, if they're dimly lit, it's a little tricky, but I can still manage. Once I take the first step, I can kinetically feel, okay, the next 11 are going to feel this much in my body, if you know what I mean. Um, If I'm like going around, I need to read anything, whether it's like a prescription bottle or ingredients at a grocery store crossing the street, I can't see the signs. I can't read anything unless I zoom in with a magnification device. 
if I'm going to like a new building, say a new office or friend's house, sometimes I end up knocking on the wrong door, pressing the wrong elevator button. <laughs> but those are all good examples of how I get around, navigate and depend on my peripheral for the most part. Anything that involves looking directly at, that's what I struggle with. That's pretty much what my disease Stargardt's effects. If I didn't know that you had a vision impairment, I wouldn't know. You don't look like you do, whatever that means, right? Yeah. And I wonder if you're glad that you don't quote unquote look like you have vision impairment or do you sometimes wish people could tell so that you wouldn't have to keep explaining it or accommodating for them? You know what I mean? Yeah, sometimes I do feel imposter syndrome because I feel like I'm pretending for other people if I just say it straight up. Other times it's like the cloak of invisibility or whatever that thing was in Harry Potter, where it's just like, I can venture the world and still be Alicia before Stargards, which I feel like for me is weirdly enough a superpower because I have these two dualities where I lived a life that didn't involve any type of visual impairment until about 1920. And then for the last 10 years, 11 now, it's been more about how I, I adapt and I cope with this new identity. So in some ways, there's this slight inauthenticity where I feel like I'm shaping myself to accommodate others and make them feel comfortable like, oh, she's blind, but she can still do this and this. And then there's still this kind of dishonor to myself where it's like, but am I doing this for them or for me? And identity is complicated enough. Also being a black woman in this world with a severe vision impairment, there's all these expectations of you and labels that are put on you. And, and it's, it just seems like a lot. So does it ever get to you? Yes, it does more often than not. And that's why I started to do the vlogs recently on my channel, because I thought it would be a good juxtaposition from my regular talk videos, because usually once a week, I'll do a talking video like, this is how I do it, guys, or this is my tips, or this is what I've learned from vision loss, or try to look at it this way, pun intended. Sometimes there's feelings of inadequacy and shame and depression sinks in and you have to fight it sometimes you have to will to do better because you are yourself and then on top of all the layers of life there's being legally blind or visionally impaired or low vision and sometimes it just feels heavy and you have to sit with it and that's the hardest lesson i've had because i've never been the person to just sit with something i'm very stubborn talk to me about some stereotypes that you've been on the receiving end of or you've also held about people who are blind or visually impaired? There's a lot of stereotypes when it comes to being visually impaired. This idea of looking blind, which we discussed a little bit earlier, but also like the intersectionalities, like you said, I'm a black woman. Like a lot of times you think like a blind person's always an older Caucasian male that lives in a dilapidated house. Like why can't we care about interior design or have lookbooks like I do on my channel? Like a lot of people want me to stay in a certain box because it suits them better. Like you should really have a guide dog or a cane. It's like, but that doesn't work for me. How about let's talk about what could help someone who can see far away, who can see peripherally, but can't see essentially. Yeah. And having, having those stereotypes that in a way it, it strips you of all the individuality that you've always had. And that must be jarring considering that you had a before and an after. Yeah. And I think that's why I fought it a lot in the beginning. 
something like, I'm not blind. So when you think of blind, it's like a black cloak that goes on everything. It just completely erases what you were before. And I fought against that so much. And I think that's why I have like this feeling of duality still. For so many years, I was someone that was just so assured in who she was because of all these things I was able to do with my vision. And I had to redefine that once I started to lose my vision. And I still have to each and every day. And I have to come to peace, much like a lot of other people with different types of disabilities or vision loss, that I'm not my disease. And this doesn't have to define me negatively. So it's one of those things. And it's a kind of push and pull because while you don't want to be defined by this and you should not be defined by this at the same time, like you need some accommodations. You need the 400 you know, percent zoom in, you know, you need to know that people have your back on this. And so there's that sort of walking a tightrope too. Definitely walking on a tightrope. That's where like the true hard moments come where you're just, you have to sit with yourself and realize I'm actually dealing with this. Like I had a breakdown not last Monday, Monday before, because I was trying to work from home and they're setting everything up. And for some reason, it wasn't working on this monitor. And that's where I had to sit with myself and realize I'm legally blind. This is real life again. <laughs> and with that, you just, you just have to really sit with it. Then also be an advocate for yourself and not shy away from what you need and not live in a fallacy that things will be okay because it's sometimes okay not to be okay. Are there any positives to having star guards? Yeah, there are. You get discounts at the movies, but you can't go to the movies because it's the Rona right now. Uh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and you also get to go to like the AGO, which is the art gallery of the ROM, which is our museum for like you can bring a friend. And if you want, you can like split the ticket. So it's like 50% off. Another advantage is that we get to talk. Yes, I get to meet cool people like you. I wouldn't have these experiences had I not had a disability. How do you feel about that word, disability? Uh, most times I use it as a joke because like you have to own it in a weird way. If you don't, I think the seriousness of it can weigh on you. Like when people would say, oh, you're blind. I'm like, don't call me that at first because I just didn't want to take it in. And now I start off my videos by saying it's your favorite blind girl back on your screen with another one. Because I feel like when you own something like the fear, it makes it smaller. It makes it less, like I said, heavy. That's like my favorite word of the day, apparently. I imagine that you must experience a lot of people's true colors when they find out that you're legally blind. How, how has that been? What have you experienced? Yes, definitely. I've had people at work will still point at the screen. I'm like, okay, but I can't see it. Can you zoom in? And they'll just continue to point at the screen again. Like, no, she got here today to work. So she must be able to like see this far, but I can't, like, I need my font 400% zoomed in. So your tiny font doesn't work for me. And having to continuously buck against that is frustrating. But then you have the other side of people who are just so sweet and so loving and so compassionate and just really show you that humanity is still alive. So it's just, well, there's actually a third camp when I think of it. Because there's the people that treat you one way when they think you're like everyone else. And then when you reveal that you're dealing with vision loss, they're so sweet. And it's just like, why couldn't you have just been like this for the sake of being a good person? Ooh, that's a tricky category. Yeah. What do you wish you knew or understood at 25 that you know and understand now? Gratitude. Definitely gratitude. I wish I took my vision more 
like, how would you know to take one of your five senses? It's so essential and so basic, right? But I wish I took my vision more seriously, not to protect it, because there was nothing I could do to halt it, to slow it down, to reverse it, but more for the sense of travel more, stress less, learn skills, like cook properly first, like the little things in life, you know, really, really take in the joys of having an inside joke with someone and making eye contact with them across the room, drive, like there's so many things and nuances about life that I can't do that in the moment, I just allowed it. I just allowed life to cloud me. And I wish I had appreciated the little moments and found gratitude in the beauty because who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And even now I remind myself, like, don't stress too much about the future. Enjoy now. Cause who knows when I'm 35, I might be looking back at 32, like girl, why didn't you? Right. And anything that matters is right now, whether it's our loved ones, our sense of self, what we think we're going to make out of the day, because this day is going to become tomorrow and we're going to have a past that we reflect on, or it's going to impact the future and what we can be and what we perceive for ourselves in our lives. Well, Alicia Brown, host of Alicia's Guide on YouTube. I loved talking with you today. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Aw, it was so nice to talk to you, Kayon. Subscribe to Alicia's Guide on YouTube. That's spelled A-L-I-S-H-A. And find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash Alicia's Guide. Today, we're going out of our segments with songs from musicians who are blind. Right now, you're hearing Bomboleo by Puerto Rican guitarist Jose Feliciano. He's most famous for his recording of Feliz Navidad, but in his long career in the music industry, he's recorded over 50 albums. After the break... When I care, I go, I can do it. No, it's too hard for me. Well, now, it's a piece of cake. Meet three professional weavers who are also blind. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When the woman who would become my wife told me that there were blind people working at the weaving center where she was volunteering, I had to talk with them. It was back in 2017, and I didn't have the show yet, but blind people weaving? The fact that I was surprised by that concept meant that I had a lot to learn, and you know how we in public radio love to learn. When you walk into the weaving room at Hartford Artisans Weaving Center, you can hear looms buzzing and their pedals clicking, people chatting. Louise Polio, now 73 of Weathersfield, is one of the weavers there, and she's blind. We sat down in the break room and chatted about her history of blindness. I've actually been blind all my life, but at one time I was what they call legally blind, which means I had some sight. I could see things like colors and light, dark, and shadows. Eventually, I lost what I had. But the good thing for me is when I was little, I went to the School for the Blind in Hartford, and so along with everybody else, I learned Braille, even though I could see some. I might have had enough sight to use large print, but they didn't do that, and I'm glad they didn't because... When I eventually lost it around age 30, then 
it wasn't that traumatic for me. Because when I went to the school for the blind, a majority of kids couldn't see at all. So obviously a lot of things that we were taught, whether we had any sight or not, we were taught as if we couldn't see anything. But once my sight went all together, it really wasn't that traumatic for me because, like I said, I learned a lot of things as if I couldn't see it all anyway. So when it went, it wasn't that bad for me. But I have to admit, I do remember colors, and I miss being able to see them. Have you ever gotten hurt because of your blindness physically? I've bumped into things, but basically I don't because I try and be careful like one thing that tells me a lot is what things sound like. Like sometimes if you're walking and you come to a wall, you can sense it. Or if you're going down a hallway and say there's a little door along the wall, but it's indented, there's a difference between hearing the solid wall and hearing where that door is. One other way that can tell you too is snapping your fingers because you can hear the sound what it does. And um, one thing that a lot of sighted people think is that if you're born blind or if you're born lacking any sense, whatever it is, that your other senses are automatically sharper. And that's not true. It's not that they're better in a sense that we're born with better hearing, better smell, better taste and touch. But we have to develop our senses to tell us what your sight tells you. Let's talk about weaving. What brought you to the weaving center? How long have you been here? And I remembered learning how to weave when I was at school. And let's see, when I came here, it was like 42 years since I graduated from the school for the blind. And when I was being told what to do, it came right back to me. I remembered what I was told when I was at school. And I'm saying to myself, gee, this sounds familiar. I think I could do it. And I've been doing it ever since. If you were to give some advice to someone who's blind, who's never woven before, but clearly thinks there's an opportunity in this place, what kind of advice would you give them? It's good if you know what you're doing and you've memorized your pattern then it's good to keep your mind on it and know exactly which pedal to push and which way to push the shuttle. In fact, when I'm doing it, a lot of times I'll just say the pedal numbers out loud to myself, and that tells me what I'm doing so that I know where I am in the pattern and what I'm supposed to do as I'm weaving it. What would you say to people who would respond to the idea of blind people at a weaving center? That's ridiculous. It really isn't. One thing I think sighted people shouldn't do is, you know, generalize. Like they think because they try to picture themselves blind, they're trying to picture how they would feel and how they would do something like this if they couldn't see and so they just figure, well, it's impossible. If you can't see, you can't do it. But that isn't true. You know, we learn how to do things the same way other people do. You know, I can't say that it's impossible for people to learn to do it because I did it. 
It's a good thing to do because it gets you out and it gets you with other people. And I know I enjoy doing it. And I think everybody else who comes enjoys it too. After we chatted for a bit, Louise agreed to give me a tour of the facilities and to show me your workspace. One day I was standing outside when I was waiting in the hall for somebody to show me where to go. You know, sometimes if you just hear the weaving, it sounds like the old-fashioned manual typewriter carriages. Like those big chujunks. Yes, that's what it sounds like. And that's another thing, as you're weaving, you get like a rhythm of what you're doing. I'm listening. Now I know I'm in here. So now what I have to do is go all the way over to the right. This is my project right here. Now when I feel this, see where this is in the space over here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And i that's how I can feel my pattern. So I know that like this and this are the same, and then this and that are the same. So I can tell if I make a mistake, like I did this morning when I felt it, this and this were the same instead of being different. And that's how I knew I made a mistake. Now I push that through there, now I hold on to this and pull it just that far and take this shuttle and put it in here. I know right where I left off, so that makes it good. So I'm watching you pull a horizontal thread through a bunch of vertical threads and then pulling a lever to sort of squish it down into place, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. See now, like the petals go from left to right, and this one is number six. Then I gotta push this one, which is five. Five, two, six. This is one pattern, This, all this, and then this is the other one. Now, in order to finish this, I gotta go back and do the first pattern again. That was Louise Polio, now 73 years old, living in Wethersfield. Next, I spoke with Carmen Lopez. She was in her mid-50s when we spoke, and she told me about what happened when glaucoma suddenly changed her life over 30 years ago. One day when I wake in the morning, I was blind. It was hard for me because I had the baby, the three months. How old were you? 23. So you wake up in the morning, and was it like from normal sightedness to total blackness or some, something in the middle? No, everything is was black. I wake like at four in the morning because the baby was crying. And I told my husband, hey, can you please turn the light on? And he said, the light is on. They go, no, it's off, it's dark. I said, no. They go, wait a minute, what's wrong? So he, he say it was on. I they go, wait a minute, so I'm blind? It was hard. If you could go back to that morning when you woke up and talk to yourself, what would you say to yourself on that morning, knowing everything you know now about life as a person who can't see anymore? It's so hard. It's okay. It's so hard. Everything I ask God, what me, what happened, what did I do? 
What would you say to somebody who wakes up tomorrow with what you went through? What would you say to them? See, they has any medical condition in the eyes treated the right way because they don't want to lose the vision. They don't want to feel that like we feel now. Especially when you got daughters, when you got grandchild, and you see, don't see for a long time, you want to see it again, you want to see the face, how they look now. It's not easy. Maybe sometimes the people forget that we can see, but we don't see anything. Can we talk about weaving? Yeah. Tell me how weaving came into your life. For my friend, I remember one friend, she introduced me to the center, and I tried, and I like it, and enjoy now. When they said, hey, Carmen, you should consider being a weaver, were you like, are you crazy? I can't see anything. That's what I said. go, be honest, when I can, I go, I can do it. No, it's too hard for me. I don't know anything about that. But now, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> and for how long have you been weaving? 15 years ago. When you first started weaving, did it come naturally to you or was it really hard to learn? No, it was really hard. It was really hard. So I said, well, no, it's too hard for me. So I said one day, you know what? If she do it, I can do it. I know I can do it. So now, I do it. So if it was so hard at the beginning, what made you keep trying? Because a lot of people, when they start a project, and to be blind, I can imagine it's easy to be like, no, no, I'm, I'm not, this is too hard, I'm not going to do it. So why did you keep trying? Because I want to prove everybody that they go, I can do it. I never give up. Mm -mm. That was Carmen Lopez. She's 57 years old now, and she's still weaving for the center, but from home. I also got to know Derek Lewis. He's 36 and he lives in Farmington. I asked him to tell me how he lost his sight. So I lost my vision when I was like around nine years old. Long story short, I went into the eye doctors. The doctors, they did what they could to try to like repair the retina in the back of the eye. But unfortunately, they couldn't do much. What would be some pieces of advice you would have for somebody who's about to go through what you've already been through? Even though it's not easy to get around, you don't want to get discouraged. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now, like weaving and going other places, taking the bus. I mean, I'm glad that I am actually learning to be independent and not let it get me down because of my disability. Since becoming blind, have any of your other senses sharpened? Yes, it has. My hearing, my um, taste smell and feel. People ask me that too, like when you get around, do you hear things like cars when you cross the street? People ask me that question as well. How do you know when it's safe to cross? And I tell them, well, I listen for when the signal is clear or when it's quiet, then I can um, cross the street if it's necessary. Because like sometimes in a busy street, it might get a little tricky. So I try to use my instincts and just say, you know what, I'm just going to play it safe and just when it's time for me to cross, then I'll go with, for it. How do you tell the difference between currency, like bills? 
basically what I do is fold it in a certain way. Like a dollar bill will go in the flat way. A $10 bill will go sort of in the long way. Fold the bottom and then fold the other half, the left hand of the um, dollar bill of the 10. A $20 bill, I leave it in the long way. That way I can tell which one is which. Tell me about how you first came to be at the Weaving Center. Jonathan Winchman, who was my former counselor, used to come here and he introduced me to the Artisans Weaving Center. Then I got a phone call from Fran saying I can start coming in. And then a few staff came over and, you know, they started helping me weave. And I started to make a few, you know, like baby steps things like plain weave and then go from there. As the years gone by, I started to learn how to make bags and scars and different things. So it took time and patience, but other than that, um, we're starting to get the hang of it, and I really liked it. I liked the material. I liked everything about it. So what's it like for you internally when you're sitting there working on a project? Focus. Just focus on doing the um, working on finishing the material. Put everything behind me and just focus. And, you know, I'll, I'll joke around, too, and, you know, I'll talk to other people as well, and the staff will come and help me. But most likely, I'm just mostly focused and ready to go. How long do you think you're going to be doing this for? Might be a while. (laughs) This is something I feel like it's a lifetime thing. You're married to the weaving. Oh, yeah, definitely. That was Derek Lewis from Farmington. To see the beautiful work of these artists and to buy some for yourself, visit the Hartford Artisans Weaving Center at weavingcenter.org slash shop. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like antinatalism, speech disfluencies, and what it's like being a world-famous meme, visit ctpublic.org audacious. You'll also get to see photos of today's guests and the loom room, the loom where it happens at the Hartford Artisans Weaving Center. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if blindness or vision impairment is a part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts and feedback on this episode. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.